Welcome back to the Thinking God Podcast, a place looking for hope and truth wherever it might be found. Today's guest is David Hayward, the naked pastor who, after more than 30 years in the pulpit, moved in a new direction to find his passion in art. And as part of that work, he has become the preeminent editorial cartoonist concerning matters of faith, particularly as they relate to abuses in the church. I have been amazed by the profound messages found in a lot of his artwork, and I'm excited to have him as the first guest on the Return of the Thinking God podcast. But I I really, I've been amazed by um, the profound message I find in some of your artwork, and I'm really glad we're finally getting to talk about this. Um, Because our paths have some of the same similar stops. Christian college, I went to seminaries pastoral church work. Uh, I guess we part. I was raised in the deep-fried Southern Baptist churches with uh, dad on staff, and the only good people were church people. If you're not a church person, you weren't any good. <laughs> and that, unfortunately, that still, where I live, that still seems to be a mantra among some. You know, somebody meets someone, the first thing they say is, well, where do you go to church? And if, we're having a lot of folks move here from other parts of the country, and they get this blank stare. So yeah. um, My wife's from Alabama, so I know all about it. Ah, okay. Well, but, you know, the churches I grew up in were mostly concerned about, you know, controlling how people behaved or at least put on a good enough show publicly and or warning them about how hot hell was and <laughs> keep, hang, keep them hanging over that. And so what I learned growing up and being at literally probably four days a week at church, uh, and there was always something going on, was, um, you know, how to lie about feelings, thoughts, urges, pretty much anything. You get really good at that. Yeah. So my deconstruction from the church part of it, and I think that's what I want to talk to you about, sort of the deconstruction of church and deconstruction of spirituality. For me, it's two very different things. I, I'd read the Bible through, I was trying to figure it out more than a hundred times, but the first few dozen were just to argue with street preachers and evangelical types. I read it through, so if they'd come up and quote scripture, I would say, oh, well, what about this? And they'd have to try to look it up and find it quick enough. And um, so, but the ones that followed were probably a combination of desperate searches for some sort of meaning and um, academic exercises. Yeah. Because I did take the languages. That was my, that was my second seminary was languages. But my, my real faith journey, though, started in the Jesus movement, which kind of brought me back into a spirituality of sorts. But we deconstructed the church part. I mean, we certainly tore the, the barrier part, but we didn't deconstruct the theology at all. We were every bit as fundamentalist. Um, we had longer hair, louder music, and uh, yeah. you know sometimes a little showbiz, a sign, wonders tossed in. But we were still very much fundamentalist in our mm-hmm. approach. So, as I finished seminary, uh, pulpit committees at that time were very keen on getting you know somebody youthful with a with a uh, very dynamic um, prophetic type message. The long hair even didn't scare some of them off at first, but then. Very quickly, they realized, and I wasn't married at the time, single, and just absolutely said whatever I thought. So, you know, I, I didn't last long at many of these churches. So uh, it became pretty clear for me that, that full-time um, pastoral ministry was not going to be in the cards. Right. And um, so, I, but I've been a writer my whole life and um, ended up having a career as a journalist and a writer. But over the years, uh, I, I really started seeing church services you know, the over-familiarity of it, you, you, a lot of this, I'm not preaching to the choir here. Uh, I, I tell people it's like vaudeville. It's like a return to vaudeville. you got an opening act, usually a singer. 
main attraction and then a closer. The only thing missing is a juggler. And I think I actually went to some tent revivals where they had jugglers, jugglers for Jesus kind of things. So pretty much vaudeville. And um, so for me, uh, even since that word, I think the first person maybe I heard use that word was Brian McLaren years ago and right after the generous orthodoxy kind of discussions. But it's not deconstruction for me is not even a proper framing. I've moved past with deconstruction to demolition, to drilling to the very core, and maybe for the last decade or so I've been sort of swimming in the magma of things uh-huh. where um, I've actually begun to find clearer vision than I had in those previous decades. Uh-huh. But that's why I wanted to to get to where you're at. Um, mm-hmm. I want you to set the stage for your path in life and what got you to the part of being an artist, a teacher, a community leader, an author. Uh, who is currently the author currently known as the Naked Pastor. What, what was your childhood like, and what do you remember about your first images or notions of God? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on your show, by the way. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, very religious, uh, conservative. Uh, I call myself my own ecumenical movement because I went to so many different kinds of churches. Um, but I was baptized Anglican and then, you know, was in United Church and the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Baptist Church and Pentecostal Church, you name it, I've been there. And um, I was full, full on in, like I, I was I was all in uh, and completely devoted, um, especially during my teenage years is when I really, you know, turned on my devotion went to super extreme like did everything i could youth group all the time um christian rock bands you know you you name it i i was involved and un, you know underlining my bible and writing in the margins and you know you name it and then i went to bible college um i'm, I'm canadian i live in canada but i went to bible college in the united states to springfield missouri That's how did that happen how'd you get from canada to the college in the u.s uh, well it was a uh, i was at the pentecostal assemblies of canada church uh, which is a sister organization to assembly of god which is the american pentecostal and um uh they had a bible college in springfield missouri central bible college and they had a good music program, and I was a musician, so I went, I went there and started out in music, although I ended up getting a Bible and theology degree. And I married Lisa the four days after I graduated. We went to Boston. I went to gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Long story short, I ended up becoming a Presbyterian minister. Yeah, how did you get that path? That that path is interesting to me. You mentioned all the different denominations, and I noticed you were a Presbyterian pastor and then a vineyard pastor. Those don't exactly seem like complementary positions. Well, um, I, I tend to gravitate towards places that gave me room and space. So I was in I was in seminary and I was Pentecostal at the time, but could never find a home. Um, and I was in biblical studies, uh, so I was sort of uh, drifting left as I was at seminary to the point that when I graduated, I was pretty much far left of, of Pentecostal. But I was looking for a job. Uh, Presbyterian Church offered me a job in Canada as an assistant, a large Presbyterian church in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and um, ended up. Uh, there and ended up getting ordained as a Presbyterian pastor. Didn't I I read somewhere that right before graduation seminary though you had some sort of epiphany that sort of shifted things around? 
Yeah, I'd uh, come to the conclusion. Now, I was totally into the Bible, right? I had Bible and theology bachelors, <coughs> Bible and um, New Testament studies uh, in my master's, uh, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, I, all the biblical languages. Um, and I started my, I was going to start my PhD in New Testament studies. I wanted to become a New Testament scholar. And um, I was well on my way. Uh, but getting pregnant derailed us, and I ended up in the ministry. But what happened was the, the day I graduated from seminary, I basically, I was in my uh, graduation gown and everything, uh, and getting ready to go to graduation when I realized I doubted the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of, of Scripture. And, you know, for me, that was the cornerstone of all I believed. It was like everything stood on that. And so if if uh, if that went, everything started to topple, right? So Did something lead up to that or just, huh? was there some series of events or something you listened to or read that led up to that or? Well, you know, I had been um, studying the Bible for many years. Uh, I, I, before I even went to Bible college, uh, I've still got my interlinear New Testament where I, you know, it's all underlined and colored <laughs> pencil. And like, I, I was totally, totally loved and into the Bible. And then in Bible college, studying, um, you know, a great Bible scholar there, a Pentecostal Bible scholar, uh, you know, I learned to love Greek and reading in the original languages and the synoptic gospels and you know blah 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 and then in seminary dr gordon fee was my mentor and uh one of the world's greatest uh, textual critics for the new testament greek and uh just uh and then what what really nailed it was i i read a book and everybody always asked me what was the book it really doesn't matter it's surprising what things propel you into chaos but in this instance there was a little book by James Breach called The Silence of Jesus where he talked about the uh, um, oh I forget the name of the committee that decided which uh, sayings of Jesus were authentic and which weren't um, the funks were involved in that and, and other biblical scholars and uh, they would literally white ball or black ball uh, a saying of Jesus and he concluded that basically there were seven sayings of Jesus that were considered authentic and the rest were imputed, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, projected into the mouth of Jesus. And uh, so he went, you know, on with his argument, sort of applying a Nietzschean uh, hermeneutic to these sayings of Jesus. And I'm telling when I was done the book, <laughs> I was, I was like totally devastated, totally devastated. So it wasn't just that book. It was the last straw, right? So right. it, it really toppled me, and and I spent the next decades, my whole ministry, trying to figure that out. As 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 I tell people, my deconstruction process was like a glacial melt. It just took so long, um, but uh, yeah, that's that's what happened. What do you think was attractive? Because I, I I share a little bit of that with you. I know by the end of seminary, when I was doing studying languages, I began to realize there's not a code here for me to crack anymore. And I think the the, yeah. the the actually the epiphany for me actually came from the scripture itself when I realized how out of line 
Chronicles and Kings and Samuel were, and I started thinking people are telling me, you know, and I was at Southern Baptist, which you you know they 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 put the the E in there. In there. See, I mean, they uh, but it it, it began uh, there, but there was this urgent desire, and also I, I still see it with people now that fear that that house of cards, if you question it at all, everything tumbles down. They think it's all inter yeah. interlaced and interwoven. That if you even start talking about what could this mean, not. And, and even the most fundamentalist pastors, I know you've seen this over the years, it's, it's not news, but I would hear guys that were that were that would call themselves, you know, fundamentalists based on the old fundamental books from the 20s that would say the Bible means what it says and says what it means. And then they'd read a passage and say, and here's what that means. I mean, yeah. they were doing the exact same thing. <laughs> but you, you were, yeah. it, it, so you, you were a pastor, you were having a glacial deconstruction, and then you started writing a blog in 2005? Yes. What prompted you to start doing that? Um, I can't remember what prompted me. Maybe somebody suggested it or something, but I, I chose the name Naked Pastor. I might want to clear this up for your listeners. Uh, I there, there were a lot of pastors out there blogging when blogging was you know starting to increase. I read a book uh, about blogging, and I thought, you know... Um, there's a lot of pastors out there blogging, um, talking about their successes and the church growth and how to build a sermon and worship music and the wonderful fellowship and all that. So I thought, I'm going to be the naked pastor where I'm going to tell the truth about what really happens and, and throw back you know, the curtain and uh, let everybody see behind there what really goes on in the life of a pastor uh, with all the conflict of financial struggles, the you know, um, loss of people, the hilarious, uh, terrible music sometimes, you know, um, the fights, the, you know, all the, all that stuff, as well as the, as the good stuff. But I wanted people to, to see the honest life of a pastor. So that's why I chose the name Naked Pastor, just basically meaning exposed and, and raw and real. And how, how much have you had to explain that? Did anybody actually think you were a naked pastor? All the time. <laughs> I get it all the time. People without imagination saying you're such a pervert, you know, and all that. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the most modest people I know. And, uh, you know, if they just took one glance at my blog, they would understand what it means. But, you know. <laughs> well, I grew, I grew up in churches that the word naked would, would make some people blush. So I understand that. I can, you know. But, that, yeah. you know, that, that idea of pastors, I think, that, that has is to such a myth as you do see the success books, the seminars, the, the things that, uh, and the idea that most people don't recognize that you're asking one person in most cases to do an impossible series of jobs. I mean, I know guys who are tremendous pastorally and struggle with the teaching part or are tremendous yeah. teachers, but really struggle with the relational pastoral part that, you know, but to ask somebody to do all those things, I don't think most people, it even crosses their mind what their pastors are up to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, um, I really struggled with, uh, being a pastor. Um, I, I was constantly, as I use the term, I was constantly kicking against the pricks, and um, I don't mean the people uh, in the in the congregation. I just mean I was constantly wrestling with my calling, and my role, and uh, I didn't fit um, the sort of orthodox, you know, um, definition of a of a pastor. But I, I feel I did a good job, um, and I that's what I hear from people that I was a good pastor. Uh, I don't claim to be a great teacher or a great 
counselor or you know great organizer or great money raiser or anything like that but um i i i did well what i what i was really good at was providing a safe space for people to um be themselves and to learn how to grow and 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 be their own kind of spirituality so i was good at that uh community so you started that early oh yeah yeah i did i mean i you know i came out of the gates young and and brash and uh uh, confident and you know but I, I also came out of the gates with people like Eugene Peterson in my pocket who you know I was reading all his books on how to be a good pastor he's probably the greatest pastoral theologian the church has ever you know had I mean there's others of course uh, but I he was up there in the top 10 probably of pastoral theologians and um, so you know I I did my best to be a, a good a good pastor and um, listen to people and and to uh, you know let them be who they were and let the churches be who they were. So I was I was uh, an assistant to a large city Presbyterian church, but I was also a country pastor too. And um, they're very very different animals. And uh, you know to allow them to be who they were, young congregations, family congregations, old people congregations. So. You know, I just uh, tried to be the best pastor I could to those people, and 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 that's carried on to this day. I'm no longer a pastor of a local church. I left the ministry in 2010, but I do uh, facilitate community online, and I I still try to apply those principles that I value very much. I want to talk to you some more about that in a minute. Uh, but sure. at what point did your blog raise the attention of your denomination and get you in trouble? <laughs> That's exactly what happened too, by the way. That's what denominations uh, do. <laughs> it's true. I was fine uh, for a long time. Uh, in fact, uh, my own people here. Uh, by this time, I was I was a, a vineyard pastor. I became a vineyard pastor in '96. I left the Presbyterian Church in '95. I became a vineyard pastor in '96. And so, in 2005, I was a vineyard pastor. I started blogging, um, and nobody cared. Um, in fact, my people uh, said, why do we want to read your blog? We have to listen to you every week already. And um, so, you know, I, I flew under the radar for for years. Uh, but I started cartooning in 2006. Then Naked Pastor started to get noticed a little bit here and there. My cartoons started getting shared. And um, by 2007, I was becoming a little bit... Uh, notorious 2008 um head office of the vineyard were starting to get letters of concern and letters finally, of concern i like that <laughs> and, then, and finally in 2009 i got the call that i needed to run everything through them first and um and in in 2010 i left the ministry so that must have been terrifying for you at the time though because i mean I, i've got friends now who are asking some of the same questions who are pastors and they're like, this is all I've ever done. You know, I'm, I'm, this is my career well, and my education and I, that's all I've ever done. I have a huge heart and a lot of empathy for pastors who are in the ministry and feel trapped there um, or confused, don't know what to do. I know exactly, exactly. I, I've, I've been there. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I, I was I was looking for a job, and 
all I knew was theology and pastoral education. And, you know, I, I would even apply it at coffee shops. And I, I have this sense of shame about me because they're probably thinking, hmm, this guy left the ministry. And he's looking for a job in a coffee shop. What did he did he, you know, fondle some children or something? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, 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 I was totally embarrassed and ashamed and completely confused. I didn't know what to do. And I was at a complete loss, but I'd done it before. I'd left the ministry, done it I'd, in 95 when I left the Presbyterian church and things fell into place. And I knew when I left the ministry in 2010, somehow something would fall into place. And what happened was a friend who was teaching English as a second language at a university suggested I apply because as pastors, we do have teaching skills. And I just needed to get my Oxford uh, training for teaching English as a second language. And I did. And I got the job. And I did that for a couple of years uh, until I decided to make a go of making Naked Pastor a full-time gig. But And it worked. But I, I totally get it. The darkest time of my life um, was when I left the ministry. It was a, absolutely the darkest time of my life. And it lasted a couple of years. And... Um, I was, I was terrified. I was, I I remember the day I quit and my wife, Lisa, uh, was working a night shift and I was lying in bed and I was thinking, oh my God, what have I done? Like, what have I done? And just this terror came over me. So if you're a pastor out there and you're struggling, I know totally been there, but I also know, I also know you can land on your feet. I know that. And, and I've helped a lot of pastors do that. In fact, I have a, I have a course online. I'm just going to mention this. I'm not trying to say No, I want to hear about I'm going to talk about the courses more in a minute. Go ahead. I'll leave the ministry. And um, so it's because I, I do know how to leave the ministry. <laughs> well, emotionally, how did your fellow pastors, friends, church folks treat you after you were announced you were leaving the pulpit? Terrible. Yeah. Um, when I when I left the church, I, I left it in the hands of a of a somebody who took over for me, and it was all congenial, amicable, uh, friendly, and the plan was I had eventually come back and as a member and just be there as a, you know a member, uh, as because we were a community of friends and um, but things got awkward as they do and um, you know. I ended up not feeling welcome. Well, actually, it wasn't just a feeling. And, and so we, we ended up not going back. And that's how my um, life as a churchgoer ended as well. That was accidental, but it was a spinoff of me leaving the ministry. And, and so we lost a lot of friends. Uh, I lost a sense of purpose in my life, a, a fe- the, that feeling of having a destiny. Um, I lost my paycheck, of course. Um, I lost activity. I lost things to do. You know, um, it was it was an incredibly dark time. So, if I could just shed a little bit of light on that, because uh, that sounds really depressing. Um, it, I, I know. Uh, I've I've helped pastors. I've seen them do it, where you can get through that very dark valley and get through to the other side, and have a really happy life. Well, and it's not just pastors. I mean, I know you, this one of the reasons we'll talk about your community more in a minute, but 
uh, a lot of people who have invested their lives in community and finding their tribe at a church that start having doubts or thinking of things differently or want to express, they feel isolated and alienated and, and just completely, you know, at a loss to, to know what to do because they, they lose that fellowship and the church and everything. That, yeah. That's what that's what strikes me as such a just a crushing blow that someone who's suddenly get to a place in life as adults, they start thinking about their spirituality, trying to take it seriously, and when they do, people want to shoot them down because that uh, what is it the, the golden calf of certainty is yeah. people who are still trying to bow before that, and if and if yeah. they can't be certain, then what else is it's back to the inerrancy thing. If you're not certain about yeah. that, then what else? Am I wrong about and um, right? So, yeah, yeah. I, I think if churches um, relaxed in that area and provided a safe space for people to grow, including through that, like like as as human beings and just in our normal growth, we go through adolescence and young adulthood where we question everything, we buck authority, we don't trust institutions, uh, we're trying to figure out how to live life. Uh, on our terms and take control of our lives to sort of take the steering wheel of our own life. We, we, we challenge our parents, we challenge authority, we challenge teachers, uh, cause we're just trying to find our own way. And I think that same dynamic, uh, needs to happen in our spiritual life, but that's where you're cut off. That's where you're, you're no longer welcome. And it's too bad because, um, you know, it, it, it's just a normal part of our spiritual pro process. And, and if, if we are allowed that space, I'm totally certain that we'd come back around and, and uh, sort of uh, help, help, um, help the community um, become richer and deeper. And, uh, but, you know, that just isn't the way it works. We're, we're allowed to stay children and um, preteen, but as soon as we hit uh, that adolescent stage, you're, you need to either... Uh, buckle or or go those, those seems to be the only choices and that's in my opinion why so many people are leaving the church now is because they realize this is the only way i'm going to be able to be myself and to grow well i'm I'm stunned that there are still so many churches teaching very publicly about submitting to the authorities of the church and to the pastors and the elders and i mean that's still i mean even in some of the big more contemporary churches um that's still a main teaching is, you know, if someone has an idea or a question, now you've got to submit to our leadership. And that just, again, yeah. that's not an answer. <laughs> well, no, but see, uh, even when I, when I left the ministry, I was 52. And um, it's a very scary place because now I'm out from underneath, uh, you know, the denomination, the church, observing me sort of that fishbowl thing uh so i i i was out of the fishbowl i was out from underneath the umbrella of authority i was beyond the hedge of protection you know all that stuff accountability everything i was on my own and it was a real scary time and i remember a friend saying um to me one day why are you always looking for a father figure and it struck me that was my last step was um taking autonomy and and personal agency for my own life and and to stop looking for permission and um, validation 
from some authority figure. That was my last step, but I was 52 years old. So I totally understand when, when somebody in authority who's charismatic and has spiritual clout says, you need to be under authority. That has a lot of appeal for, for people who are insecure about their, you know, their, their souls or, or, or whatever. And uh, it, it, I can totally understand why people flock to that. Well, in decades of, like you, you touched on, you know, some of the ancient teachers there, there of modern teachers that cost about all this, you know, husband authority, church authority, but even, even just, um, you know, the, the whole Christian retail industry is banked upon seven easy steps or four short, shortcuts Jesus didn't know and all these weird things that, you know, it, it just always struck me as odd that people are looking for a shortcut and not really looking for a spirituality. Right. <laughs> but it's become even more acute here in the States in the last few years, obviously with politics, because people have not only drawn lines in the sand on their fundamentalism, but on their, their they've mixed it into an ugly blender of politics and that that's just created something that I've not witnessed in a long time. And I was part of the civil rights movement and other things. It's just a very unusual place where, again, the, the people are looking to be validated somewhere and they're just going anywhere they can to get it. Well, unfortunately, it's not it's not just in the states. Uh, we're seeing it here in Canada um, with uh, you know convoys, and right. we're seeing it in France and and other European countries. Uh, uh, we're we're seeing it in Australia. We're seeing it in in different uh, Brazil, right. uh, all over the Good world. There's this sort of populist movement, and they know for a fact. They know if you blend the right kind of Christianity in with that, it's unstoppable. They know that it's a it's a mixture, it's a recipe, and and they're using it. Um, so you know it's like with the, um, the the I don't know if I should mention these things here, but uh, you know with with these sort of uh, um, protests and everything that go on, a lot of the money comes from right wing Christian organizations and people. Yeah, I Um, saw that uh, the hackers found 92,000 donations had come from Christian right-wing hackers for the convoys. Yeah, yeah, so they know. If you can can get up there and stoke people's fears and, uh, you know, grease that with uh, um, Christian fundamentalism, you've got a magic recipe. And it's interesting, interesting, at least in this country, pre- Pre-fundamentalism as we know it, uh, populism was really, in its pure sense, trying to work for the working people, the poor. They were more aligned with the unions and socialists than they were, you know, Christians and stuff. It's very interesting that words. But I want to shift away from that. Your artwork, I want to start talking about that a little bit more, has Mm -hmm. some really keen insights. And one of the, the fairly recent ones... Uh, to me is an incredible example of what I'm talking about. And it's one of my favorites because I've been looking through a lot of your stuff. And it's a woman talking to Jesus and she's telling that she spent her entire life only to know, wanting to know what Jesus wanted. And as a result, she never knew what she wanted and she still feels guilty to even consider what she wants in life. And man, yeah. I can relate to that so strongly because that's kind of the way I was raised. Uh, you were not raised... Yeah. To, what are your... You were raised basically to sublimate, sublimate your own ambitions and dreams and desires, especially yeah. related to sexuality. And yep. um, it's, uh, I, I think that cartoon was really profound, and I think I, I've shared it with a lot of people, and I think it really resonates with people who were brought up in some sort of, of uh, and I don't even mean 
the way some people would define harsh, I just mean traditional religious, you know, church teaching growing up, particularly in the, the, the decades that I came up. Yeah. No, that cartoon, um, it's, it's personal for me because that's how I was raised and, and that's what I chose. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, like you do too, that we were complicit in our own yep. um, spiritual formation, right? So uh, in, in, in the Pentecostal church where I was in, uh, there were two choices. One was the health-wealth gospel, where God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. But, and then there's the other one uh, with poverty and um, to, to, to choose to be like Jesus who didn't have a place to lay his head and, and, um, and that's the one I chose. <laughs> and man, did it show. <laughs> well, a lot of people that chose the other one didn't end up too well, so. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I chose the poverty. I even remember John Michael Talbot. Do you remember him? Oh yeah, John? absolutely. Yeah, he and um, he sang a song. And his brother Talbot. Terry Talbot. They were Mason Prophet band, and then he's in. He's a monk now, right? Yeah, John Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he sang a song called uh, "Lady Poverty," and I memorized that song and I sang it and everything, and I sort of made it my vow. And when I left the ministry, I was I actually had to file for bankruptcy. I was so poor uh, and in debt from being in the ministry for so long and for not valuing um, money or taking care of myself or success or anything like that. I chose poverty and I, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, lo and behold, I was poor and um, relatively. Sure. And um, when uh, I, I knew when I left the ministry, I got to get my act together here. I got to, I got to figure this out. And so I went through a huge learning curve and re reading and meeting with coaches and going to events just to heal myself from my unhealthy attitude about money and business and success and selling and marketing and all that kind of thing. In fact, I wrote a book about I was going to say, you've got a book on that and a teaching, right? And, and a, yeah, a course. Money and spiritual. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and I, you know, I, I still got a ways to go, but I'm a lot better than I was. But yeah, it was, it was uh, a big deal. I remember uh, Hosea Williams. Pardon? A lot of pastors struggle with that. Oh, they do. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, they don't teach it. Uh, certain things they don't. They don't give you the heads up on the seminary. That I, I always want. Money is one of them. Um, uh, mentorship is another one. It's, it was too much of you got to step up and be the man, not. Yeah. You know, but uh, Hosea Williams, who I marched with in the civil rights stuff, would, would always tell people that would come in, particularly with that kind of poverty message, because you did have in those days a lot of uh, from various traditions coming in. He would just look at him and say, you know, um, you think you're going to outdo Jesus? And he said, just do what you can do, you know, <laughs> and put all that other stuff and leave it for another day. We don't have time for that here today, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think that's that was pretty good, pretty good advice. Um, yeah. To, and I think uh, many of your cartoons seem to be aimed at encouraging those who've been damaged by the church. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. That and that's why that cartoon about the woman saying I didn't when I left the ministry um, the first time back in '95. Uh, one of my mentors said to me, "Well, David, what do you want?" And I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted. I even felt like a sinner asking myself that. So um, I try to help people. Um, I try to give people space and say whatever you're thinking is okay. Whatever you're feeling is okay. Let's explore you know, and, and, uh, see what we come up with. So that, and, and anything that for me, personal freedom is utmost. 
and I like to see that in other people. And, and um, so I do my best to provide people with the space to discover that for themselves. And anything that comes against that, like spiritual abuse or control or, um, you know, uh, propaganda or, or anything, uh, I try to help people uh, get through that and discover their own freedom. Well, and, and that that's, you know, those, those goals are great, but they're, they're so that path is so much steeper. Uh, and it's the, the people who've been more, um, you know, inculcated into the religious culture find it even, even steeper. I, I know I heard years, this was years ago, I think when the, the, they were first, the first few seasons of Seinfeld, when it would become famous, they were interviewing Larry David and they asked him if he was excited. And he goes, no, I just don't get excited about anything. And they said, when I was a kid, my mom said, hey, we're going to Coney Island. Are you excited? He goes, eh, no, it'd be fun, but I'm not really that excited. I was, <laughs> I sort of feel like I was raised to be that way, you know, not to over, you know, are you excited about this? Well, you know, it'll be fun. Yeah. But, and it's, it's a very difficult uh, concrete barrier to break out of to admit, hey, oh. I am excited about this or that, because it's on the one hand this, the other hand that, and you're, you're, you're raised to, to, um, to take it in a certain way without admitting, wow, you know, I really like this or I really like that, unless it's something religious that you can actually express. Yeah. No, I know. It, it was a hard, hard, hard journey for me. And that, that all, all was taking place after I left the ministry when I said it was one of the darkest periods of my life. I also had to learn, okay, I'm bankrupt, literally. I have no money. I'm not allowed to have more money. Up here in Canada, it's a seven-year process where they put you on a budget. And um, I, it was it was it was hard, but I had to uh, figure I had to figure this out. And and so now I'm running Naked Pasture as a business. It is a business. It's a ministry, but it's also a way I, I, I make my living by selling my art and books and so on. And, um, you know, I still wrestle with with it all. It's still because it's so embedded and enmeshed, entangled even. In, in my in my mind um, so yeah it's a, it's a lifelong process of healing for me in this the past decade that you've been doing this uh, what kind of response have you received from this message that perhaps the baggage of tradition is not in line with what Jesus taught when people come to you that they're confused or oh it's 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 uh it's kind of like a two two part process I think for most people and, that, and this this is kind of like the analogy I use for uh, deconstruction people who are questioning their beliefs and so on um, I don't recommend reconstruction deconstruction for me basically is there's a tomato seed that's planted there's and and all the farmer does is remove obstacles weeds rocks um pests and they might add some nutrition water manure you know but you leave the basically don't touch the seed anymore or the plant uh, you might put a uh, um, what do you call that when you cage or a stake yeah yeah and uh and but th that's it you don't pull on the plant you don't pull on the tomato you don't you know try to make it grow it just you give it the space and it will grow and but so there's that twofold thing going on where you remove uh, bad thinking, bad theology or whatever, bad habits. And, and I've seen it over and over again, even in my own life, where you remove the obstacles and you're going to grow. 
And if, if we were raised in my tradition, particularly, um, you're already well acquainted with the manure part. So, okay. <laughs> um, another one of your cartoons that I, that I, I personally have experienced in, in particularly in recent years, because I, like I said, the older I get and the more I just, I'm not, I don't have time to play around with it anymore, is the one that, uh, it's talking about losing your tribe when someone gets holy ghosted. That's another great oh. phrase. Somebody <laughs> says something to Jesus and they say, you got holy ghosted. I really like that needs to be your next t-shirt your holy ghosted t-shirt but that that's a great phrase and it's also very descriptive I mean people will absolutely you know I, I, you were talking about a while ago the, the relative nature of poverty it's also the relative nature of persecution it's very polite persecution but it's persecution nonetheless people yes. act like they're being nice to you but they are not being very nice to you oh man I you know I've had people not being nice to me <laughs> so it's yeah, the Holy Ghosted thing. Uh, uh, you know, it's one of the things I grieve about. Uh, I've been through. Uh, I'm determined to be myself and to continue growing. And it seems that there's not very many people who are willing to stick with you through that whole process. You might have people that join you for a time. They like you at that moment. But then you continue growing and you outgrow their expectations of you. Um, and, and you lose, I've lost so many friends over the years. Um, and that's a, I've been wholly ghosted by a lot of people, but you know, um, I'm me, I still have me and that's what's most important. As a pastor, you probably remember this cause we've all experienced it. Uh, you preach a sermon and somebody comes up and said, I liked your sermons from eight or nine years ago better. <laughs> You know, you're thinking, so I, I shouldn't have grown at all during that time, you know. You're yeah. kind of, uh, a lot of your pieces in, in the last couple of years have addressed, uh, at least the ones I looked through, how women and those in the LGBTQ community have been attacked and ignored by the faith communities. What what led that to become an important part of what you're drawing? Um, well, I just, uh, those are things that, matter to me i guess uh you know no i don't guess i know these things have always been important to me um i've never had a a, a sexist or a misogynist attitude I, I i think i just have always been a feminist i think um i have always never thought i've never thought gay people were um excluded um from heaven or whatever, whether you believe in heaven or not, you know what I mean? Um, so I, I've never, you know, I, I've I struggled with, okay, how does this fit with what I've been taught? How does this fit with orthodoxy? How does this fit with the Bible? All I've, I've struggled with all that. I'll admit that I've gone through the, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin thing and all that kind of thing, or they can belong, but they can't participate. I've been through all that, but uh, I've never felt that they were, you know, excluded from heaven or from God's presence or anything like that. So it's always been, for me, it's been a, a growth thing to the point now where there, I, I feel completely that we are one. We are completely one and united on a deep and fundamental level and that there should be total equality, total um, same um, opportunity uh, and democracy in every way. And I'm, I'm very strong about that. And I'm kind of surprised that the church seems willing to die on this hill. Um, you know, I, I remember in the Pentecostal church years ago when um, if you were divorced, you could not 
participate in any leadership capacity at all. That was true in Baptist at one point too. Yeah. Now, now what, the, it's changed. And now all of a sudden it's okay, you know, uh, to be divorced and to be uh, an elder or even be ordained. Um, also, uh, I remember when um, um, purgatory was a thing. Uh, and now the church has decided it's it's really not a so very, no very rational idea, though. Very, you can see how somebody came up with that idea. Yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. work it all out later. <laughs> it's the same with um, um, psychologists and um, therapists and so on. There was a day a few years ago when you were not allowed to meet with your clients online. It had You had to be face-to-face and you right. had to be in the same state uh, or whatever. Well, COVID hits. What happens out of economic necessity and health? health reasons as well now they can meet online uh you know so necessity uh somehow applied pressure to reason and and the rules change and i'm hoping that eventually the church will see you know what if we don't become inclusive and provide equal opportunity for everyone including women and and lgbtqia folk uh we're going to die well, and, and that, so, that I don't know who that, came up with it originally. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it sounds so churchy, though. Anyway, the love, the sin, or hate the sin thing. I had a mentor one time. He said, he said actually, we really we love the sin. We just hate the sinner because we all want to sin. <laughs> he said, so it really works the other way if we're honest with ourselves. We're the ones that love the sin and hate the sinner, no matter what we're talking about, whether it's homosexuality or something else. But, yeah, uh, I, I, uh, one, uh, I have a cartoon, love, uh, love the Idiot, Hate the Idiocy. <laughs> and, and it's it's kind of the same same well, thing. <laughs> I mean, it just it, it, it's such a cop out to not have to deal with something. And um, it mm. is it is. I mean, as somebody like you who've studied languages and stuff, it's so interesting how people have been so selective in you know, particularly the, the verses they like to throw out the most in the most of the big conservative churches about uh, about those issues. Um, yeah. Okay, you've started a community for um, folks who are dis- disenfranchised. Uh, tell me a little bit more about how that community works and some of the comfort people have found knowing there are others who feel like the religion has failed them in some way. Well, um, I I started using the word deconstruction way back in 2008. And then I uh, eventually, when I left the church in 2010, I experienced quite a bit of loneliness. Um, I felt like, uh, you know, I'd been sort of cast out into the outer darkness. And um, so in 2012, I launched an online community called The Lasting Supper and um, just invited people to come and join uh, who were going through deconstruction. Um, Not not very many people knew what that meant at the time. So I I was basically, if you're questioning your beliefs and you need a safe space to vent and, and you're changing your relationship with the church, then come and join the Lasting Supper. And I, I wanted to keep it small because I didn't want a big sprawling kind of a online thing. So there's a, a couple of hundred members still to this day. Um, and and it, that's all it is. We just provide a safe space. There's no correction or teaching or, you know, anything like that. And and we just listen to one another. And uh, I, think, I think there need to be more communities mm-hmm. like that. So... 
Yeah, yeah. I, I saw a story recently about uh, was it Denmark that has uh, actually has a library where people can go and check out people's stories. Somebody will sit and tell them their story, no crosstalk or anything for an hour, and then they just leave. So, well, so, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I I read that too. It's interesting you use the term crosstalk. Uh, not very many people know what that means, but it's a professional term used in small groups where there's uh, group therapy going on or Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that. Crosstalk meaning you can't correct anybody or interfere and say, but what about this or, you know, anything. You just let people share their story with no judgment, no criticism, uh, no correcting or anything. And it's amazing the kind of growth that can happen in the individual and in, and in the community. So I appreciate you bringing that term up. Yeah, I love that phrase from the recovery community. Uh, all you can share is your experience, strength, and hope. Yeah. Those kind of things would be powerful if they were adopted a little more broadly. And I know, look, that's not perfect either. There, a lot of those meetings, they struggle. <laughs> the same people want to do the same things too. Human yeah. beings are human beings. Um, can people still join that community? Is it closed out now? or No, it's not closed. Okay. Uh, it's There's a paywall, however. And right. I, I apply to pay, paywall of $15 a month or 150 a year because... It just, I'll be honest with you, it keeps the trolls out. Right. And right. Uh, it's, it makes it a, a guaranteed safe space for the uh, members who are there. I, I read through those principles of your community, and one of them said, uh, one of the key principles said that uh, is being true to yourself. What does that mean to you to be true to yourself? Well, uh, it, it has a lot to do with what we've been talking about today, Greg. It's, it's really... Um, learning how to be in touch with who you are and uh, not, it reminds me of one of my cartoons where the character is talking to Jesus and saying, I've never felt more like myself, but his body is a Bible. His head is a happy face. One of his arms is the fish. His other arm is a cross. One of his legs is John 3.16. You know, <laughs> he's made up of all these Christian cliches. And so if we can learn how to uh, uh, become, like, figure out who we are, our naked selves, our raw selves, um, and, and recognize that our spirituality is a part of who we are or becomes sort of uh, permeates who we are. But we need to know who we are. And so uh, our true selves, that's what I'm referring to, our authentic unadorned cells and it's almost maybe it's a stretch but to me in my mind that just it just occurred to me that reminds me of unless a seed dies to all these trappings and things that aren't real you know uh -huh. yeah. but um the word christian has been so abused and so added as modifiers to everything do you still consider yourself christian do you still call yourself a christian well i i'm i'm famous for um um, people claiming them slippery like an eel and I'm like jello trying to nail jello to a wall. Uh, I, I admit Christianity is in my roots. Um, I respect my roots. Uh, it's in my DNA. I respect my DNA. Uh, it's so enmeshed in who I am. It's my family of origin. Uh, I might have seemed to have left home, but I still feel like I'm in the game. And what I often tell people is uh, my home is in Christianity, but I have cottages everywhere. So <laughs> that's basically that's basically what I what I tell people. Um, I, I, I resist labels because then it limits you. As soon as uh, somebody says he's a Christian or he's an atheist, I've been called both um, or, you know, I'm a heretic or I'm a saint or I'm a sinner, whatever. All those things are an attempt to put you in a category and put you away. And so I avoid 
you know, a can of food doesn't need the label because it, it knows what it is. It's it's for the people out there. They they apply it so they know what you are, and and so um, I don't need the label. I know who I am, and uh, but other people, uh, you know, love spending their time trying to apply one to me, and uh, that's that's a hobby um, that a lot of people seem to have. Uh, as somebody who was a pastor in in that in in the you know traditional sense from 30 years and still been a pastor. So how do you see the role of the church in society today? I, uh, you know, a lot of people think I hate the church because I seem to be criticizing the church often. Um, and I do. Um, but, but I love the church. The church to me was my mother, uh, is my mother. Um, I don't need my mom in the same way that I don't need my biological mother. Now we have a different, more mature relationship, but, um, and I think the church will always be here. The church has an amazing way of surviving, uh, even in per, under persecution. We all know that it, ha, it and even under dispersion, it, it, it figures out a way to continue and to exist. And I think it should. Uh, I'm against uh, the idea that the church should be banned or religion should be banned from the face of the earth. Uh, that's not only um, unfair, it's also impossible. And, and so if, if the church is here to stay, my only concern is, can we please do it in a healthy manner? And I do think it's possible. And so that's why I, I talk about it so much. And I think there are men and women out there that are still trying to, you know, like I said, uh, kick against the pricks of the establishment, but staying within it, trying to change it as well. I've met men and women like that. Yeah, no, I, I know. I know. Uh, men and women like that as well, and a lot of them get discouraged. A lot of them have spoken to me and said, "Should I give up now?" And I'm like, you know, that's that's on your timeline. I I can't tell you. Um, I I stuck to being an, a, a minister, a pastor for almost 30 years. Um, and there's some young people saying, "Look, I'm about to be ordained. I don't know. I'm struggling." I said, "I was there on the eve of my ordination. I was." It was like the Garden of Gethsemane for me. <laughs> I did not know if I was doing the right thing. And, and you know, I, I said, give it a shot. Nobody's got a gun to your head. You don't have to stay um, right. and uh, figure it out. You know, uh, there does need to be people on the inside. I'm on the outside doing what I can. I was on the inside. People say I gave up too early. I said, come on. I was 52 when I left. Give me a break. <laughs> you know, I, I gave it a good shot. And but now I, I feel like I'm actually more effective now than I've ever been in uh, being uh, serving the church. Yeah, I think and, if you could take your current state of mind and experience and you're 22 again and you're going into the church, I mean, that would be a totally different. Oh, my. <laughs> what, what about what role do you think the Bible plays today? What role does the Bible play in your life today? Well, I, I, I love the Bible. I still have all my Bibles. I, I never burned any of them. I never sold any of them or gave them away. Um, they're still all there. Uh, but, you know, the Bible to me, um, I, as, as I've divulged earlier in our conversation, it's so much a part of my thinking. It's so in my brain, right? Uh, and uh, so my, my understanding of the Bible has evolved. And if I may say so, matured uh, to the point where I, let's say we have a, 
literalist who believes the Bible is absolutely literal, historically everything. I think I have a, I, I, I appreciate the Bible more for what it actually is, you know, uh, where it's, you know, there, it's full of story, it's full of myth, it's full of legend, it's full of metaphor and parables and poetry and all that. And it's and, and it does an awfully good job at conveying truth. Um, so that to me is what the Bible means. So it's about the meaning and not the argument over the structure or the history or the anything. No, no, no. It, what does you know, it mean? And I guess the yeah. What's it? I, I feel it was written by a bunch of men, literally, who um, were attempting to articulate a great and profound mystery. And they were on to something. But it's like Karl Barth, my favorite theologian to this day, um, who said the Bible is kind, of, it's kind of like John the Baptist, who was pointing to the Messiah. Point, it's pointing to the truth. It's not the truth itself. It's a sign pointing to the truth. A lot of people camp on the sign saying we found it, but it's actually just a pointer. It's a sign pointing to something. And they, they did a great job. Um, but it's not the truth itself. It's pointing to the truth. And it's been made a part of, literally been made a part of the Trinity in a lot of the traditions I've grown up in. I mean, it really is the fourth member. You can't be four members of a Trinity, I guess, but Absolutely, the Bible yeah. held equal weight to the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And You know, with my cartoons that get uh, some of the most kickback are ones where I, I challenge bibliolatry. Um, it, it's amazing, the, the, the fights people bring to, to those cartoons yeah well, let's talk about cartoons you got a new book coming out uh, it can be pre-ordered yep. now right yes it's called uh i'm really excited about it it's um it's being published by uh, broadleaf books um and it's called flip it like this <laughs> and that's jesus flipping the tables in the temple yeah people can't see it but right. uh, you can see it but it's it shows jesus uh showing a woman how to flip a table and it's based on the story of Jesus overturning the temple uh, tables in the temple, the money changers. So he's showing her how to how to uh, flip tables. And um, anyway, and all what it is, it's it's my um, best of cartoons. So I've been cartooning for 17 years, and the 125 of the best, most cherished and beloved cartoons of Naked Pastor, and there's 12 never before seen included in there. And um, it's under 20 bucks, and you can pre-order it now from Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Indie Books, um, a bookstore near you. So, yeah, pre-order it. I would love that. Kindle version available as well? Yep. yep. That's right. And it'll be available. It'll be coming out in July. Is that correct? Am I right? Yeah, July 19th, I think it is. It's coming out. Okay. But, uh, yeah. You want to tell people about the other books you've written? We mentioned the money book. What else have you written? Oh, I've got nine other books. <laughs> All at Amazon. I saw it on your Amazon. You have an Amazon page. I've got Questions Are the Answer. Uh, I've got a, a book, a graphic kind of a novel on uh, Sophia. Um, I've got a book on how vision is harmful in the church called Without a Vision, My People Prosper. Um, I've got a Naked Pastor 101 collection of cartoons. Um, I've got The Lasting Supper, Letters for Deconstruction. And, uh, oh, I've got a book for um, um, uh, marriages when you're uh, called Till Doubt Do Us Part, When Changing Beliefs Change Your Marriage. And, uh, yeah, I think that's 
all of them. Do you do any speaking engagements? Or are you out and about speaking? Or Well, I'm kind of uh, off in the boonies here. I'm way up in Canada, out to the east, north of Maine. Um, yeah, I and, think you're the first person I've ever talked to in the Atlantic time zone, I think. Whatever. Yeah, so, um, but I, I have. Uh, I've spoken um, during COVID. I've done some Zoom in meetings, streaming meetings in California and Indiana and, you know, other places. And I have gone in person to those pla different places as well. Um, yeah, so I'm open to that. If anybody wants to invite me, I'd love to come. Well, your website, uh, nakedpasture.com, is a portal to a lot of work. We haven't talked about your original paintings, which are really, I think, both beautiful and haunting, a lot of them, to me. Uh, it, this, it looks like you've been painting a long time to me. I don't, I don't know the story behind your artwork. How, how long have you been painting, and how important is creativity to an understanding of God? Those are two different questions, I know. But. Yeah, I've been painting my whole life. I mean, my dad was a painter, um, and he did some watercolors, but he mostly did oil on board. Uh, but it inspired me to do make art. And so I've been drawing and painting ever since I can remember as a small child. Um, and for me, so I have sort of two streams of creativity uh, when it comes to art. One is my sort of controversial cartoons. And then, then I have my contemplative paintings, which, like you say, they're very kind of serene, uh, haunting, uh, a lot of space. But that, to me, is the, the link between the two is freedom. So in my cartoons, I'm fighting for the freedom of people to be who they are and um, for, uh, for churches to allow that. And then my paintings are, are about freedom being expressed through space and, and room and um, negative space, you know. So th th that, that's how the two are linked together. and That's my spirituality, really. And I know I discovered you on Instagram. I think you're all over uh, social. You're on Facebook and Instagram, correct? Everywhere. I'm even on TikTok, if you can believe wow. it. <laughs> wow. Wow. See, I, I'm, I just, I just have not figured TikTok out yet. That, that sounds like an old guy talking, which it is. But, uh, but I do hope everybody will follow you on Instagram because that's where I first discovered your work, and you put a lot of stuff up there. And that, uh, yep. again, your book's coming out. Flip it like this. And I enjoyed talking to you today, man. That was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. And the book is Flip It Like This. It can be pre-ordered from Amazon. His other books are available there as well. And you can see some of his other fine art pieces at his website. And I enjoy talking to him today. Well, that's about it for this edition of the Thinking God podcast. Join me next time when my guest will be Amy Jill Levine, who is a Jewish New Testament scholar and professor at Amy Jill Levine.